Hello and welcome to QIC's QPod Investor Podcast Series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development at QIC. And in today's QPod, we are taking a close look at the FX markets. The currency markets are, of course, some of the deepest financial markets globally, with participation from firms across any industry with an international presence. This year's ongoing COVID-19 crisis has offered us some really interesting challenges that haven't been seen since the global financial crisis back in 2008-09, including in the sphere of the currency hedging program. So I'm really excited to have this opportunity to challenge head-on some recent negative headlines and discuss the important role currency hedging has in institutional portfolio and ask the question, is it underappreciated by investors in the portfolio construction process? So joining me today is Stuart Simmons, who is Head of Currency in QIC's Liquid Markets Group, and is here to help us understand, can investors find positions of strength and forward-looking planning and a holistic approach towards currency? Welcome, Stuart. Thanks, Craig. Stu, Head of Currency, it's a pretty descriptive title. Can you share with us a bit about your journey to becoming a currency management expert, what you do in your day-to-day role for our clients, and perhaps what you found most exciting about being in the FX space? Sure. Uh, I started in currencies back at the old Bankers Trust Funds Management, and that goes back 20 years ago. And I'd been working there. At the time, it was a fairly leading asset management organization. It was an exciting place to work. Uh, It was an exciting time with the tech bubble going on at that time as well. And, uh, and, a, and a slot opened up for me is in the currency trading role, which um, I adopted fairly quickly at very short notice and had a very steep learning curve to get a handle on how currency markets worked. I was more familiar with bonds and other assets at that point, but um, it was a great experience. I spent a bit of time there at BT before uh, it had some uh, institutional change. And then I ended up spending 12 years in London, largely on the asset management side, but uh, also having a stint on the sell side as well. And it was about five years ago that I returned back to Australia uh, in this role at QIC, which has been a, a great experience. And um, and I guess you've talked about, uh, or you you're asked about, what are the things that um, that I find interesting in currencies? I think, you know, one of the things about currencies and having done this for 20 years is that it's it's far from boring. There's always something to go in currencies. There's always something to learn from. And there are always ways that the currency markets and exchange rates can surprise you. Uh, it's far from easy and it's actually quite daunting in the fact that it, it goes for um, effectively six days a week uninterrupted trading. And uh, you do get a lot used to a lot of um, sleepless nights, but I really wouldn't have it any other way. It certainly is a 24-hour market. Um, and Stu, you and I are both big believers in the role that currency hedging and overlay programs can play for an institutional portfolio. And I reflected this morning that each year you almost embark on a pilgrimage of sorts around the big themes to be aware of in the currency space. If I look back to 2018, you know, we all attempted to elevate the role of currency hedging in the local market, at least, around the asset allocation decision process, highlighting their, their defensive qualities and their benefits of um, optimal allocation. So, you know, a few years on, as participants in the institutional investment industry, are we there yet, Stu? Have we seen an uplift in currency hedging and overlay programs? 
And if not, perhaps you can give us a bit of an idea of why you still think it's being overlooked. Yeah, good question. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, I think it's not that currency is being completely disregarded, but what I would say is that it's probably not given the the respect that it deserves or the credit that it deserves in terms of the influence that it can have on a diversified portfolio. Uh, and, you know, we see it subordinated well down the pecking order of SAA decisions. And, you know, a hedging program is essential for Australian investors. The Australians, by their nature, have a deep savings pool. And by necessity, given the size of the Australian asset markets, they need to invest a lot of those savings offshore. And so for Australian investors in particular, the hedging program is a really important part of their SAA, their asset allocation, and their investment framework in general. Um, you know, we've done some you know, fairly simplistic studies which show that foreign currency risk can represent the second highest risk factor in a diversified fund after equities. But you just have to do a, a bit of a deep dive on uh, asset allocation tables and fund disclosure documents. And you, you see a really mixed approach. Uh, there are quite a few funds out there which still don't list how they treat currency, what their strategy is, what their philosophy is, uh, and they don't list what their exposures are, uh, which is really surprising to me given the impact that it can have uh, as an investor. There's also an apparent lack of a coherent framework towards hedging where investors don't really align their objectives, their investment objectives, uh, which are often around risk or return, and how that can be supported from the currency program itself. So, you know, you did ask, have we, are we moving in the right direction? Uh, are we there yet? I would say that we are moving in the right direction, but it is pretty slow progress. Uh, and we've had a lot of conversations with investors where you feel like you're you're making some sort of an impact, but then quite quickly, it's easy that the other issues become more important than just the currency program. And you do often see the, the currencies being neglected, if you like, the treatment around currencies. Um, one area in particular where, where I think we've seen some really positive movement um, from our investors, our client base itself is is the integration between the currency and asset overlays to form a real holistic strategy. And we've seen how that's worked particularly well during recent market conditions. Wonderful. Well, that's good to know we are moving in the right direction. And I suppose it is a good uh, source of motivation for yourself, Stuart, around these research projects you embark on. So, I thought you could just quickly share with us without going into too much details because we're going to get into that during this conversation around some of the backgrounds that drove this year's uh, research piece and those five themes that you sort of have concluded on. Yeah, sure. And, and this is the, the third time that we've uh, had an investment insight listing five really important themes that investors can um, consider for their currency program. And this year's is coming out a little late actually because given the nature of the market environment, we decided to pivot things around a bit. Uh, and a few of the themes that we were looking at and had done quite a bit of research into, we decided to shift into things that were clearly more topical and important for investors to consider. And, uh, and this environment's really highlighted 
in so many different ways how currency can have a really strong influence on an investor's outcomes. And I think um, I think we're going to see some, you know, quite a few winners and losers who have come out of this. But for this year, we've there's five themes as usual. Uh, one of them, which is has been clearly important and, and in the news, is the essentials of managing liquidity risk uh, and how the currency program can help there. Uh, the second is quantifying the impact of the hedging policy during the COVID-19 crisis. The third is analysis of the detrimental impacts of trading at the London 4pm fix. And I'd like to go into more detail on that one later. Um, the fourth, quantifying the impacts of implementation through the rebalancing process, something which sounds very simple and generic, but can actually have quite a strong influence. Um, and the fifth one is the forces that might define the cycle low for the Australian dollar. Well, we're getting into the, the, those a little bit more uh, as we get through this conversation, but I, I want to start where I sort of kicked off in the introduction, which I, where I mentioned COVID-19. When you reflect on the height of the financial impacts of uh, that crisis environment for us, Stu, how would you describe the FX markets and what institutional investors on average experienced? Yeah, uh, you know, this this crisis, and, and it's been a long time since we've had market conditions like this. Um, it's very similar to the period in late 2008, the height of the GFC, but there are a few differences from that. I mean, volatility during this episode, at least in FX, was lower than it was during the GFC. And also we've seen less persistent moves. Uh, obviously the very sharp turnaround in asset prices has led to a sharp turnaround in uh, in exchange rates as well, and you know one of the major differences between this episode and the last is the last crisis was a financial crisis, and there were really serious issues around the solvency of your counterparties during the GFC. Um, clearly, with Lehman's going under, that was a very big concern. Um, during this cycle, we haven't had that concern at all, and the the Real stresses have been elsewhere. Um, as I mentioned, there's going to be some winners and losers out of this. And, and I do expect that there's going to be many investors who are going to reconsider the role that currency plays in their portfolio. Um, the experience of institutional investors through this crisis could be at either ends of a spectrum where those who are highly hedged with short-term forwards will have had a completely different experience to those who really embrace the diversification that foreign currencies provided. Um, and obviously the liquidity was a major issue as well um, for investors and something which has clearly made the news. And there are different impressions of, uh, I guess, how stressful that was uh, and continues to be for institutional investors here in Australia. So we're, we're pretty keen to get into the themes. And the first one, as you mentioned, is the essentials of managing liquidity risk in a hedging program. In the current period, the FX hedges I think of as being where the first wave, if you will, of liquidity uh, concerns ahead of member switching and in the Australian market as in particular, the government easing of those financial hardships for early access to super. Stu, can you talk us through some of the insights into the severity or scale the liquidity demands the FX Edges had for an average super fund 
this is, of course, is it you? And we saw that um, happen in the GFC as well, as you mentioned. So I suppose the following question would be, is it realistic for investors to run their programs efficiently during these crisis periods and in doing so, ensure their hedging program isn't undermining the other investment opportunities across their entire portfolio? Yeah, you, you mentioned the a number of different issues which all came on at the same time and the compounding of those issues has really had to lead to some creativity from investors to ensure that they're able to meet those cash requirements. Um, obviously the settlements for their hedging program was one of the major drains on liquidity and the Australian dollar started the year around 70 cents and came very close to touching 55 cents on those March 19 lows. That's a really sharp move in quite a small amount of time. And um, once you compound that with the member switching out of out of diversified funds into cash and the government's early release scheme, you, you get the sense that that's going to stress um, any investors' uh, liquidity positions. And, um, you know, we've, We've seen how um, investors reacted to that and uh, and it was very important to be flexible through that period. There's um, the, It also highlighted the importance of having a an asset overlay which can help substitute those uh, that exposure if you do need to sell down listed assets um, which are liquid, uh, you can replace that through futures and be able to access that cash. That was extremely important during this um, recent environment. But really, I mean, the best case was that investors were in a position of strength when uh, everything was going horribly wrong in asset markets, where they weren't uh, extremely so concerned about liquidity that they were selling down good assets at fire sale prices. And an investor who was in a position of strength there, who perhaps was probably more considered towards the liquidity profile of their hedging, who perhaps had a higher weight to foreign currencies and and used that diversification. Um, They may have been able to act from that position of strength and being able to pick up those assets at fire sale prices rather than having to sell them. Um, So, you know, I think the, the experience of investors you know, really straddles a, a fairly wide spectrum there. Um, and and really, you don't want liquidity to be defining your SAA. You really want liquidity to be handled through implementation. And as we've listed in the, the research, there are a lot of ways that um, an investor can go about their hedging program to support their objectives by making sure that liquidity isn't first and foremost the primary issue that they're trying to deal with. Stu, whilst our audience is um, certainly a global one, uh, if we use the Australian investor as a bit of a base case here, and as you've observed the Australian dollar's behaviour over the last few years, uh, what fundamentals have really stood out to you and how have these helped or hindered a domestic investor? Yeah, one of our main themes from a couple of years ago was in a late in a late cycle environment, the Australian dollar tends to behave in an asymmetric fashion, which is really important because it tends to be highly sensitive to adverse market conditions. Uh, that's where the Aussie dollar follows negative asset prices lower, 
And in a more benign or positive asset market environment, the Aussie dollar tends to behave more ambiguously without the same level of sensitivity. So this puts Australian investors in a great position if they want to take advantage of this behavior because the Australian dollar is going to help you to have that diversification on the downside by going overweight foreign currencies. But when asset markets are going along fine, then the Australian dollar, those foreign currency weights, aren't really going to hurt you too much. And we saw that especially through 2019 as well, when asset prices had a strong run, but the Australian dollar didn't really go anywhere. Um, and I think, you know, having observed that back in 2018, it has played out very much how we would have expected over the last couple of years and, and even into Q1 of this year and, and beyond. When the price action, as we saw the COVID-19 crisis play out, as asset prices were going through some very violent moves, the Australian dollar was also going embarking on some very violent moves. Um, and the difference between a fully hedged and a fully unhedged international equity fund from an Australian perspective was about 15% um, when you get to the market lows. 15% is a, is a fairly material outcome. And it just goes to show you that if you've got a, a small change in your hedging, you could have had a fairly material impact on your portfolio. And we don't advocate for someone to take a fully unhedged position, if you like, but it's really just to highlight how important the influence of the, for, of the currency hedging program can be. Stu, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. Um, how accurate do you think the market understands the Aussie dollar's behaviour? Is it inconsistent and, um, in, and, and the role, the defensive role it can play during these volatile periods? And I suppose an alternative is we're focused on the Australian dollar, but could local investors be focusing on the other side of the denomination and looking at those um, foreign sort of sides for their fortifications? Yep. I would say that that Australian investors are fairly well versed in the sensitivity of the Australian dollar. There may not be as much of an appreciation for that asymmetric behaviour, but generally the Australian dollar is re regarded as pro-cyclical. But that's not to say that there hasn't been much, you know, a challenge to that in recent years because the Australian dollar hasn't been as sensitive on the upside in stocks and prior to this year, we've had a fairly long upside in stocks. There were quite a few investors and quite a few strategists out there, uh, and even journalists, who were saying that that sensitivity had disappeared. Um, you know, we looked a bit deeper and saw that that sensitivity was still there. It was really just skewed towards the downside. And uh, and what was the second part of your question, Craig? Oh, just around the fact that you've got the Australian dollar focus in this conversation, but of course, the whole point of FX is that you are literally trading one currency against another. And so I'm wondering whether we should be looking at the other side of the equation sometimes as well when it comes to our hedging programs. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's one of probably what I would regard as the most neglected area of the hedging program is actually trying to get more out of your foreign currency exposures. Because oftentimes investors think of Australian dollar and foreign currencies. 
they don't think of that foreign currency basket as a way that can itself be changed to help meet the objectives of the investor. Um, and, I, I, and a good example of that is really that many investors use simply the weights of the MSCI world as their benchmark or underlying assets for foreign currencies. But there are a number of currencies in there which have different behaviours and there's a number of currencies which are more defensive than others. So there's actually a pretty strong case to look at the characteristics of each of those foreign currencies in isolation and make a decision about how you'd like to have your foreign currency weights structured to help support your objectives. And generally, the objective of foreign currencies is to try to enhance diversification. So here, I'd argue that there's a case to try to overweight those currencies in certain periods, which are going to help you to diversify. And of course, Shu, in your paper, you sort of provide a, a realistic example using some APRA data of a my super portfolio and some of the FX policy implications there. So we'll leave that for our listeners to uh, read that when the paper is released. I want to switch to the famous London 4pm fix. And I know it's a, a particular area of passion for you, Stu, and you really want to uh, shine a spotlight on this particular area of the market. You also call this out very specifically in your paper. So it might be a good idea to describe to us as to why avoiding the fix represents such a rich opportunity to improve efficiencies for global institutional portfolios in their currency hedging programs. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, it's it is something I'm fairly passionate about because I see so much waste going through at the 4pm fix. Um, it's probably worth outlining first what the London 4pm fix is and effectively it's a set of closing market prices which are published by Refinitiv uh, and it's used by benchmark providers from MSCI through to the Bloomberg Global Aggregate Bond Indices um, and also by investors and custodians to mark to market FX translation and hedges. So the London 4pm fixes are actually very important. Um, and if you think about a passive program, a passive global equity program, it's essential to try to keep tracking error to a minimum. Uh, and so they'll, they'll be very sensitive around rates at the London 4pm fix, but it's actually used much more widely than that. And we've noticed in the past that there's a systematic relationship in how the fix is priced. Uh, and, and for that, you've got to go into the background of how investors place orders at the fix and how the fix is calculated. So for an investor who wants to place orders at the fix, they might say to their counterparty, look, I'd like to sell 200 million Australian dollars uh, at the London 4pm fix. And they might put that, that order in um, 10 hours beforehand, two hours beforehand, half an hour beforehand, but it, it has to be has to go in beforehand so that counterparty has an idea of how much trading they need to do. And the fix itself is calculated as the median price in a five minute window um, around the 4 p.m. So it's two and a half minutes before and after 4 p.m. So if you think about the, some of the volumes that are going through the FX market, that two and a half minute window before and after, it's too small. It's often too small to accommodate the level of trading. So there's quite a bit of pre-hedging that takes place in the market. 
And pre-hedging is really where the counterparty gets started early, ahead of 4 p.m., to ensure that they can offload their risk um, before they have a price that's set in the future. And what happens is that pre-hedging influences the level of the fix because if a, a bank is selling a large volume ahead of the fix, then naturally the market is going to move lower. And it tends to skew the actual fixing rate towards the highs or lows of the range that takes place around the fix, particularly at month ends, particularly during volatile market environments, and also particularly at quarter ends as well. So given the environment we've just gone through, um, courtesy of those moves, the violent moves in asset and currency markets, we've seen even more pronounced pre-hedging. Uh, and there was some clear herd behavior with a series of moves in late February and March where the Australian dollar sold off up to 2% in just the hour ahead of the fix. So there are a number of situations there where the Aussie sold off 1%, uh, 0.7%, 1.5%, 2%. And this, an investor will get set at the fix. And the investor, without knowing what the price action, how that price action took place, will probably be satisfied that they got the fix because that was their goal. If they wanted to get filled at the fix, they ended up getting filled at the fix with a very low uh, bid-ask spread. And they might feel pretty happy about that, but it's actually turned out to be very de detrimental with a huge amount of what I would call um, waste that's gone into that herd behavior and getting set at oftentimes the low of the range. And so really it's completely avoidable to, um, to avoid getting stuck with a fill that represents the low of the range. And, and it's very intuitive to understand that if you've got a number of investors all moving in the same direction, that that's going to influence the market and you'll end up getting set um, you know, on the edge of that range. And so, you know, we've seen from our own experience that there was a huge benefit, a very material benefit in avoiding using the 4 p.m. fix um, and, you know, even taking advantage of what we see as, as very forecastable um, behaviour. And Stu, you know, given a lot of our clients globally are very focused on costs and fees, you really are calling out here uh, effectively a, an invisible market impact cost by choosing to trade passively at that point in time. And you sort of alluded to the fact that there it is realistic to achieve. Um, I suppose the question really is then, is it just a matter of just trading the day before or is there more to it? Yeah, there is more to it than that. And it's really about understanding the nature of the trade that you're doing. You know, what is the, the reason behind what you're doing is it is it an active trade is it something that's trying to get you back into your uh, exposure targets back towards your targets and um, and really understanding market conditions and so even executing just an hour beforehand would have been beneficial but just taking that further you've really got to understand how you expect the day to play out you've got to understand market conditions across all asset markets and then you can act, actually project that onto how currencies are likely to behave um, during that same period. 
So it, it does take a little bit more uh, insight and depth, but I mean, the very, very first thing to do is just avoid that fix. And of course, the payoff is that uh, you don't incur those unintended costs as well. We just talked about the fact that, you know, areas like fees and costs is such a big area of focus for our client base. The other emerging area of focus for our client base is around the environmental, social and government aspects or what is commonly known as responsible investing or ESG. There's a couple of names for it. It's also become a really strong theme that has continued to stay resilient in a way through this COVID-19 environment. And so whilst there's been a lot of coverage, if you will, around the, um, the focus of the amazing impact for our environment from the overnight closure of air travel, manufacturing, trade reductions, et cetera, there's also initiatives around this particular space in the FX markets. Now, I know you're a very proud member of the Australian and Global FX Committee, Stu. What's been the biggest impact of these global FX codes thus far? Yeah, that's it's a good point, and I'm I'm glad you raised that, Craig, because there have been important initiatives over recent years, really culminating in the launch of the FX Global Code in 2017, which represents the G in ESG, and that's around governance, and that was developed through a collaboration between the private sector and the public sector, and across all types of market participants, including the sell side, the buy side. And, uh, and trading platforms and infrastructure providers. So it was a very, um, I guess, all-encompassing effort to make sure that there was some sort of framework that investors uh, and participants could feel comfortable with uh, across all market participants and across the globe. And, um, and there's now been over 1,050 market participants who have adopted the code globally. Uh, including a small but growing number of Australian super funds, which is very encouraging. And in terms of the benefits that that's had, I'd say, you know, very obviously the first benefit is around conduct. And I'd say undoubtedly there's been a huge improvement across many of the, mainly across the sell side, but across information sharing, uh, front running and, and misrepresentation. Um, there's now a, a, you know, a very huge awareness of how market participants need to conduct themselves. But beyond that and beyond the benefits from that sell-side perspective, I'd say that, that there are benefits across the buy side as well. And many investors are going to gain their own benefits through uh, adopting the global code and the standards of the code. Um, from identifying gaps in their trading processes, to even just having the courage to ask difficult questions of their service providers, including FX managers and counterparties. And it often demystifies some of those relationships that you have in the FX market because it at least provides a guidance as to what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. And I think gives people confidence to call that out now. And Stu, when you think about the fact there's over a thousand signatories globally, um, and then you reflect on the fact that the Australian pension system's one of the largest and certainly wants to be one of the leading globally, uh, you'd have to say there's a real calling at the moment for Australian superannuation funds and, and other industry participants to really get behind this code. So thank you for raising that. I want to switch gears uh, back back into the, um, I suppose, the trading of FX markets. So 
institutional investors are increasingly focused on implementation efficiency. Um, trade execution and, and slippage are clearly concerns that uh, we're all very focused on. You've been highlighting the importance of a, of a thoughtful and considered approach uh, versus that set and forget. And we talked about that earlier with regards to the London 4PN fix. But with regards to implementation efficiency, can you talk us through how these differ and what the potential trading costs implementation could be on average? And was there a, clean, a clear theme here rather for 2020? Yeah, again, just, just as with the London 4PM fix, I think it's really important for investors to challenge market conventions. And, you know, a market convention here for, for funds who are rebalancing is to perhaps rebalance monthly, which is how those equity benchmarks um, tend to rebalance. And again, just as with using the London 4PM fix, that type of approach is going to be very detrimental to Australian investors. And the reason behind that is is largely due to that pro-cyclical Australian dollar. Um, when you've got an investor who's you know, at their target exposure for foreign currencies in the Australian dollar, if asset markets fall, then immediately they're going to be in a position where they're overhedged. And if the Australian dollar is selling off at that same time, then being overhedged and having the Australian dollar suffer is going to detract from your performance. So it's actually really important to track the value of your underlying assets and rebalance in a, a, you know, a more thoughtful way. And um, you know, one way that we approach that is to make sure that we're tracking those underlying assets on a daily basis and using thresholds to determine you know, how much risk tolerance an investor is willing to wear and, uh, and making sure that we get back into structure, which you know, has a material impact on the portfolio. And you, know, you mentioned you know, being able to quantify that and we've, we've done some modeling to quantify that effect for uh, March this year. And at one point, the, um, the exposure was, the, or the impact of that between rebalancing uh, using indexation and thresholds versus not rebalancing at all. And at one point, the impact on an international equity fund that's 50% hedged blew out to over 1%. Uh, but by the end of the month, once both assets and the Australian dollar recovered somewhat, the final impact of the month was just under 40 basis points. 40 basis points for anyone is a huge impact. Mm. Um, and you know these are very similar numbers to what we saw during October 2008 as well. And you know it's not a fluke. Uh, it's something that again systematically disadvantages Australian investors if they're following that market convention. So that's another thing that we think um, deserves to be challenged. And again, there's just there's better approaches that can really help support objectives. Yeah, amazing numbers there, Stu. Thank you. Um, we're in the tail end of your paper at the moment. And uh, one of the things you call out is that the reassertion, if you will, of how just how deep and liquid the global FX markets are. 
And I think you highlighted earlier, there's a huge amount of daily turnover in these markets. I think it's a whopping $6.6 trillion a day. It sort of it certainly suggests to me, and I'm sure most of the listeners, that there's a genuine and balanced market of buyers and sellers here. Um, I suppose my question to you is, is that the case? As institutional investors continue to grow in size, does this concept of liquidity and market depth, you know, is it likely to remain? And is it even conceivable for a superannuation fund to start to move the FX markets? Um, so are these environments where an investor should be more aware of this and what implementation options are available to them that they should be aware of? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you mentioned the volume of trading in FX is immense. It's the largest market in the world. It's $6.6 trillion a day in turnover, according to the BIS. And, it, you know, it, it is more than just conceivable that a super fund can influence exchange rates. And I think some of the price action that we saw, quite a lot of the price action that we saw in March was actually driven by uh, rebalancing of super funds and adjusting their exposures uh, downwards to, um, to ensure that they are rebalancing more regularly than that monthly rebalancing set and forget approach. Um, and we could see that through that price, act, price action into the London 4pm fix. And we also saw a lot of co-movement between the Australian dollar and international equities. So there is certainly while turnover is very large, there is a fairly fine balance there between sellers and buyers. And the marginal seller or the marginal buyer can have an influence on exchange rates and super funds are certainly large enough to, to have more than enough weight to influence exchange rates. So in terms of how people can approach that and, and really ensure that they're having less market impact, uh, it does take, you know, some of this is from experience and, and some of it's very intuitive. There are a number of different approaches that an investor can take, but Really, I'd say first and foremost is try to avoid those uh, market conventions. Try to avoid uh, trading at times of day where you see um, your peers trading, and um, and really trying to be, uh, I guess, thoughtful about the impact that your program can have. Because even though you may not be aware of of how much price impact your trades might be having, you might be feeling pretty comfortable with uh, a very modest TCA um, there and that TCA is your trade cost analysis um, you know that TCA might only represent the difference between your bid and uh, and mid or your bid and uh, or mid and ask um, it might not represent and probably doesn't represent the market impact from your trades so really they need to be in scope and uh, and every investor needs to have a gauge of how impactful their trades are. Thanks for that, Stu. And mate, thank you for all your insights today, uh, particularly those that were really covering the market we find ourselves in today right now. It's such a fascinating area of the financial markets and there's clearly good reasons why a thoughtful currency overlay program of any variety has a strong purpose in the institutional investors portfolio construction process. Your five currency considerations for 2020 paper will be released this week. And whilst our conversation today did hover around an Australian investor, the themes are just as relevant for any institutional investor globally. So if you would like to get more information on managing liquidity risk in a hedging program, 
understanding the role FX policy is having during the current crisis, the unintended impacts of relying on that 4pm fix, the role agency risk and governance can play in your program, or the options for an effective implementation program, please reach out to your QIC relationship manager. Thank you for listening. Watch out for our next podcast, please, and have a great day.